David also said this in the Word of God. O God, thou art my God, I shall seek thee earnestly. My soul thirsts for thee, my flesh yearns for thee in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So think about that passage in light of what we just looked at previously. This is what he does. Um, He's doing that second uh, outcome, verse 9, I think, that second of those three outcomes, and that is to ponder. He's pondering here. He's thinking. He knows where to go in a dry and weary land. He knows what to do. He knows where to go. He knows what to think. And the reason he does is the same reason we ought to as well. He, He realizes that his sin has been adjudicated in his favor, and so do we. How we know this is we go to the court and we read the transcript of the trial. We read the transcript, which is the Word of God, and it's clear in this transcript that we've been given grace, mercy, and His love has been bestowed upon us through the cross work of Christ. So I would encourage you now, as the transcript of the Word of God is preached, listen, ponder, and allow the God to move you where He desires. Amen. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Esther. And as you're turning there, I encourage you to locate the insert with which to follow along and take notes. We're on chapter 8, and this is an incredible passage, which I'm going to spread into two weeks. Um, And so this is part 2A. And then next week, we'll, of course, do part 2B. We're going to look at verses 1 through 2 today um, from this great text. And uh, as this is God's word, let me invite you to stand together with me as we read it. Hear now the word of our king. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. And Mordecai became, uh, came before the king, for Esther had disclosed what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, thank you for the time you've given us now to fellowship with you around your word. Lord, we pray that you would transform the foolishness of this event into a glorious blessing of fellowship with you. That through the foolishness of preaching, we might sup upon Christ. That Jesus, yourself, O Lord, would be present and that you would do the teaching, the serving, the nourishing, the growing of us in your grace. Holy Spirit, grant us your unction and thus the ability as, as we study together that we might be able to understand your word and see it clearly like we perhaps have not seen before. Lord, open our eyes truly that we might behold you. We pray this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Most of you are probably aware of the music of Randy um, uh, Trawick. Randy Trawick. He, He has, as Ken Banks years ago told me, he has the quintessential country music voice. Um, and he's known for such hits as Forever and Ever Amen, Deeper Than the Holler, Three Wooden Crosses. 
One of my favorite Randy Trawick songs, or as you know him as Randy Travis, okay, one of my favorite Randy Travis songs is not one of his most popular. And it's, it's called If You Only Knew. I've, got, I've printed the first stands in the course. Um, let me read it to, uh, to you. By my grandfather's bed, my mother's reading. Psalm 62, God is a refuge. My grandfather stirs. Could it be he's waking? One final time, he has something to say. <clears throat> and the chorus is what his last words were. If you only knew what lies awaiting, if you could only see what I can see, if you could only hear the music playing, the angels singing sweet victory, oh, if you only knew, if you only knew how much he loves you. I like this song because it um, contradicts an inclination that you and I have in our hearts towards God this very moment. We take for granted God's mercy. We take for granted God's compassion. We take for granted God's love. If we only knew how much God loved us, how it would change so much in our lives. But we take that for granted. And so um, why? Well, because, brothers and sisters, we are performance-based in our walk with God. We were born into this world performance-based. We're saved. And even though we are saved, nevertheless, we still have this performance-based relationship with God such that no matter how much we study scripture on a daily basis, we need to realize our flesh is constantly rebuilding what was once destroyed in Jesus Christ. It's always rebuilding it such that we relate to God more than, more than not on the basis of what we think, on what we say, a basis of us, basis on what our track record, our good intentions. Um, and we know this. You know this, I know this. The best uh, a test of this or sign or symptom of this occurs when you and I um, encounter bitter providences. When you and I go through bitter providences, when you and I go through difficulties of life, hard ones, when we feel like God's providences have turned against us, how long does it take before you and I start referencing what we've done as we approach God and say, why? God, haven't I done this? Haven't I done what you wanted me to do? I thought I was doing what you wanted me to do. Haven't I been faithful? Haven't I gone to church? Haven't I read your word? Haven't I prayed enough? What do I need to do different for you to change what you've ordained for my life at this moment? Brothers and sisters, all of that is a sign and symptom of our performance-driven life before God. And brothers and sisters, that is the struggle that God's people had when the book of Esther was written. Esther's written at the end of a, of a covenantally redemptive era, if I can put it in that way. It's the end of the theocracy. For the next 400 years following this book in Malachi, which would be written about 20 years later, following these books, silence from God for the next 400 years. And you know what? That was one era that God's people lived in where there were no miracles, there were no prophets, there was nothing fantastic going on. And it would have been so easy for God's people, as God's people in Esther's day uh, believed, that God had rejected them, had let them go, that God no longer cared, or that something they've done have, has somehow angered God or made God not disown them, but just sort of be revolted and let them go. Brothers, it's the era in which we live. Began 95 AD. It's been going now for 2,000 years. 
where we don't have prophets, we don't have miracles, we don't have these, these fantastic things that, that remind us, hey, God's our God. No, we live in the humdrum, and that's where God's people lived. And they lived as, as people who believed. These people believed that God had turned his back on them. While they knew God was their God, they knew that they were God's people. Nevertheless, they believed by conviction that because of what their, their parents had done, because of what they had done, God was done with them. He was a distant, far-off God. Yes, he was their God, but they were naughty. Naughty children. As a naughty children, he had turned his back upon them and was letting them reap the consequences of their own refuse. And so they struggled. So God raised up two people, Esther and Mordecai, male, female, prototypes of the typical Jewish believer in their day. Thus, this book, brothers and sisters, is all about the love of God to a people who thought they were beyond God's love, to a people who, who, who did not know how much God loved them. This book was given so that they would come to understand in the silent years that God does care, that God is present. You know God's name is not a reference here. His, his name is conspicuously absent from this book. That one time you read the name of God in Esther. But he is so present with his people. We've seen that, haven't we? God is intimately involved in all the details of these people's lives. And God wanted his people to understand that. Well, we're on the second to the last section of Esther. It's a big section, Esther 7, 8, and 9, verses 1 through 15. So it's a big chunk of scripture. All of which speak to the same issue. And that issue is the end, the telos, or the method behind the madness when it comes to God's providence. What is God doing in these people's lives? Where is he bringing them? And this passage is a microcosm of, 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 um, which gives an answer to that very question. Where is God? What is God doing in your life? Why is he doing it? What is the end game? What is God after with regards to you, me, and his people? That's what these chapters are given. This, the, the, this book doesn't close with this, but really the, the final portion of this, of, this of this book gives us that question. What is the end game? What is God's ultimate purpose, ultimate end for first chapter seven last week, the wicked? And we saw the ultimate end of the wicked is sudden destruction, right? And this week, we're turning our focus now to God's ultimate plan when it comes to his people. Now, this chapter begins it. It goes all the way into 916. And so we're not going to address it all. I'm just going to look at the first two verses. And just by way of footnote, yes, there's only two verses. And in the scope of this, you'd think, well, let's just preach the whole chapter. Brothers and sisters, there's times in our study of Scripture we come upon a truth that is so enormous, so heavy, so weighty, that it, 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 it deserves, it's beneficial, it's a beneficial for you and I to, set, to, to slow down and ponder just for a little bit what this text is saying. One through two is one such passage. So notice with me one point this morning. We're going to look at a shocking and unbelievably glorious reversal. Incredible. Notice with me 
1 through 2 again. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had disclosed what he was to her. And the king took, on his, took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. What we just read here is something that just 24 hours, 12 hours before, would have been unthinkable to God's people in this time, to Esther, Mordecai, and all of God's people. Remember, this is happening in the course of one day. Chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8 through 916 really is one day. There's a couple of exceptions. But basically, one day. And when they woke up that morning, little did they know what God, the amazing things God would do. There are three of them referenced here. Notice with me the first one. Esther, first of all, received all the wealth of Haman. Look at verse 1 again. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. That's unthinkable. It's amazing. And yet it's very typical and very cultural. If you go back in the ancient world, you will find that if someone commits a high crime against the king, and hence against God or the gods, when they're executed, their entire estate, whatever, whatever constitutes their wealth, is given to the king. Think back with me to Naboth's vineyard. You know this. You know this story, right? King Ahab um, in his palace looks out and sees this beautiful vineyard he wants to make into a vegetable garden. And so he approaches Naboth and says, Naboth, I'll tell you what, I will give you a, a, a billion times better vineyard than this. Or I'll buy you with a lot of generosity. I'll purchase your vineyard. And Naboth said, you know, it's sentimental. This is family. I don't want to sell it. Not, not today. So he begins pouting. Well, his wife Jezebel, who's a pagan who grew up in, a, in Tyre and, and lived in a completely different uh, monarchy than, than Ahab, realized, good night. Come on, where's your spine? If you want it, take it. So she and she, she arranges it so that he can. And what she does is, if you read the text, she gets false witnesses to come forward, tr- uh, tr- uh, trumped up charges to accuse Naboth of cursing both God and the king. And when he's found guilty and executed, she comes to Ahab and says, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth. Now, why would she say that when he has kids? Of course, they'd go to the, that, that would belong to her kids. No, because in the ancient world, if you commit a crime against the king or against God, your property goes to the king. Okay, and that's exactly what happens here. Haman commits a high crime, um, is um, discovered, chapter 7, chapter 6, to, to uh, commit a high crime against Persia. So the moment he's executed... All of his worldly wealth, everything, and he was a wealthy man. He would have most likely had businesses and properties and land holdings all over the place. All of that became the property of Xerxes, Ahasuerus. And what the shocker is here, what really is shocking is Xerxes, Ahasuerus turns around and says, I'm giving this to you, Esther. So he gives it to Esther. Talk about a reversal. That morning, Haman woke up and was a wealthy man. That night, Esther went to bed with the same wealth. Incredible. 
Secondly, would you notice Mordecai was given the office that Haman held as prime minister, verse 1, uh, B, and 2. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had disclosed what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. So sometime after Haman's was dealt with that evening, um, a conversation occurred between Ahasuerus and Esther. And you can imagine it. Who's this Mordecai guy? I mean, ex-lover? I mean, who is this guy in your life? What's he to you? And she said, well, it turns out he's my older cousin. And when my parents were, uh, died and I was orphaned, he took me to his home and he raised me. He's my father. He's a father figure to me. Well, well with that revelation and the revelation of chapter 6, verse 1, that Mordecai saved the king's life and was never rewarded for it, the king says, I want to meet, you, meet your uncle. So they bring uh, Uncle Mordecai, your uncle, a cousin. They bring um, a cousin Mordecai in, and in the ensuing conversation, something, another amazing thing, which blows our socks off, occurred. The signet ring, which is possessed by the prime minister of Persia, the second most powerful man in the entire nation, that signet ring, which that morning was being warmed by Haman's hand as he wore it wherever he went. That signet ring was given to Mordecai. Mordecai, come here. And they placed that ring on Mordecai's finger, hence giving him the office of prime minister in Persia. So not only did Esther get the wealth of Haman, Mordecai got his office. Think about that. 24 hours earlier, 12 hours earlier, completely different picture, right? Haman was high and mighty. Well, 12 hours later, he was placed on a pole high up 75 feet and he was no longer mighty, right? He was executed. And Esther and Mordecai, in essence, took or were given the um, bounty, given all that Haman had. Notice thirdly, Esther invested Mordecai with the rule and authority of the house of Haman. Verse 2b, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Again, it would have been vast. It would have been a lot of property. And there's no way that Esther, as the queen of, um, of Persia, could have had any doings with dealing with that land, all those lands and all those holdings and all that money. So she had Mordecai, her cousin, take that on as his duty to run what was formerly Haman's. Now, I think I, when I, what you need to see is this, brothers and sisters. In the ancient day, one of the ways that you um, proclaim to the world that, I, that, that, my, that, uh, that the enemies vanquished was that you assumed what they had. So a common thing, if you conquered a king in broad daylight, you lay with his concubines. You lay with his harem. Right? That's what, that's what Absalom did. Another thing would be you sleep in his palace, you sleep in his bed. His kids become your kids and you kill them. And all kinds of different things to demonstrate you have triumphed. You have owned it. Brothers and sisters, Ahasuerus is not purposely doing this. But God in his providence makes it that Esther and Mordecai prototypes pictures, types of God's people living at that time in the face of their enemies assumes their power, their wealth, their prestige, their offices, 
their very possessions, their household. And again, think with me. Just 12 hours before this, Haman was running riot, had the ability and the means to do any kind of terrorizing that he wanted to with the Jews. Esther had furtively approached the king, boldly perhaps, approached the king, putting her life on the line. Mordecai, no one knew it, but Mordecai's life then was on the line as Haman was going to have him, him executed that very morning. And throughout the entire empire, wide, all of the Jews were living with, the, with this with this the, the uh, um, uh, weight and the heaviness of this dark cloud over their heads, knowing that in 11 short months, it'll be open season on Jews. That anyone in Persia could attack. Just think of it right now, your home. Imagine if in 11 months you knew that a law had been passed, that in 11 months, anyone, anyone could attack you, could enslave your kids, could kill you, kill them, kill your wife, take your property as their own. And there would be nothing you could do because that's what the law of the land was, open season. So that was resting. So in just that fast, that short of order, almost all of that was turned over. Why? Brothers and sisters, while these Jews, no doubt, Mordecai, Esther, all of them believed that there was no one in authority who cared. No one in authority cared about them. What they didn't realize is that there was the king of kings who is in authority, who did and does. He cares about them. He cares so much about them that, that they are going to triumph and be victorious over, what's it say? Haman, the enemy of the Jews. They will be victorious over the enemy and, it's not, and, they're, and they're not even going to lift a finger. It's all going to be God's doing. Does God love his people? Does God care about them, brothers and sisters? Does he ever care about them? Look what he does here with these two. It's amazing. And yet, we saw last week that chapter 7, beginning in chapter 7, 8, 9, that this passage is a type, it's a shadow of a greater reality. Do you remember how Haman's day, a downfall was? It was sudden. One moment he's on top of the world. The next moment he's hanging on top of the world, right? He's hanging on, on a scaffold 75 feet tall. One moment he's in power. The next moment suddenly he's, he's gone. We saw it last week. It, it, it's but a, a shadow of reality. First Thessalonians chapter 5, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night while they're saying peace and safety. Then destruction will come upon them suddenly. Just like Haman. Like the birth pangs of a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Brothers and sisters, you look at Haman last week and you go, whoa, that's a foretaste of what's going to happen in the end days. Haman, the enemy of the Jews, whether that be Satan or his followers, are going to suddenly be snuffed out, suddenly taken care of, suddenly thrown into the lake of fire. Whoa. Brothers and sisters, we walked away last week with a sense of sobriety, a sense of praise unto God, and a sense of, oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And a longing for the non-believers to know the Lord before it's too late. Why? Because this passage, I hope you see it, is but a shadow, a foretaste of the future. Well, if you know your Bible, if you know your eschatology, if you know the doctrine of end times, what we just described, what we just saw here in these first two verses of this book, the reversal that takes place, you and I both know these are direct 
descriptions of what's going to happen in your life. Do you know that? Do you realize that? Read that verse. Read these verses. You're reading about your future. You're reading about God's design for each and every one of us in Christ. For example, just with Haman, just like with, with Haman, the wealth of the nations will be brought before the Lord on, on the last day. Listen to Revelation 21. Speaking of the new Jerusalem and God's Shekinah glory. And the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there will be no longer night, its gates will never be closed, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Now, Revelation 21, you might go, now this is the end time, this is the last day. What are we talking about kings and nations are going to come? This is a typical uh, prophetic tool which views the future in light of, real, uh, of, uh, of the present. So it's very common to, for me to, for, uh, for example... It'd be, me, it'd be like me saying, brothers and sisters, the wealthiest man in the world, top wealthiest man in the world, Bill Gates, that sheik over there, they, their wealth is going to be given to God. Now, you know, really? <laughs> They're going to come before the Lord? I thought they'd be in the lake of fire if they don't know Christ. Well, they will be. Well, then why are you saying that? Because we're viewing the future in light of the present. Okay, so the point's this. and the end times, the wealth of the world will be given back to God. That's the idea. But we already know something about the wealth of the world, don't we? Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Blessed are the weak. What? For they shall inherit the earth and all its wealth. Do you understand? God's already gone on record saying this. All the wealth that I'm going to acquire when I conquer Satan, I'm giving to Esther, I'm giving to you. It's exactly what happens in the end times. 2 Corinthians 8, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Do you understand, brothers and sisters, God's plan for you and me is our health, is our wealth, is our happiness, is our joy. The health and wealth is the problem with their, with their damnable doctrine, and it is damnable because they're, 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 they're putting their focus on one of the consequences of being in Jesus Christ on the last day. And when that becomes the focus, they completely neglect the gospel. They, they completely neglect Jesus Christ. Why? Because they are interpreting it in the wrong era. The health and wealth doctrine of health, wealth, wisdom, name it, is true. It's going to happen, but not in this age when Jesus Christ comes back. And so when we read a passage like this, where Esther gets the wealth of the enemy of the Jews, who is that? That's Satan and his followers. She gets that, brothers and sisters. If you know your Bible, you you can see that's exactly what's going to happen with you and me. Is that incredible? You're reading about your future. Secondly, a second glorious, amazing thing that awaits us when Christ returns is the conferring of kingdom stewardship to God's people. Just as Mordecai was entrusted with the stewardship given to Haman in the form of the ring, so, so it will be with us in Jesus Christ. Listen to Matthew 25. Speaking of the religious unsaved. They're religious, but they're not saved. They're, they're followers of Satan. And the 
And the one who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you do not sow, gathering where you scatter no seed. And I was afraid and went away and your talent uh, and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, sl uh, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank and upon my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Just by way of footnote, this master is not an evil man. But the slave's excuse for his laziness, the slave's lazy, didn't want to do anything. His excuse was, oh, uh, well, I know that you're harsh, and I didn't want to lose it, because if I lost it, you'd, you'd, you'd uh, kill me. And he says, if you really thought I was harsh, then you would have put it in the bank and got interest. You would have been so foolish as just sit and just hold it, right? Therefore, get this, guys. Therefore, take away the talent from him. Give it to the one who has the ten talents. Boy, this sounds like Mordecai. For to everyone who has shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. If you've ever read that parable, and I don't understand that, that part, that's what happened to Haman. Well, all that Haman had, he didn't have. He was, he, it wasn't his, right? It was taken from him and given to Mordecai. Brothers and sisters, you know what's going to happen on the last day? Everything that this world has will be given you know, the Powerball was up to $2.3 billion last week. Did any of you know that? $2.3 billion, not a million, billion dollars. I read that, and you know what? I wasn't tempted. Because that money's going to be mine someday. You realize that? Someday it's going to be yours. Why? Brothers and sisters, think of it in this way. You have a job as the, as the, as the land caretaker of, a match, of this glorious mansion. And the budgets, there's no budget. You can do whatever you want. You're the caretaker of it. How would you work your work if you knew in 30 years the owner is going to love you so much he's going to give you the entire mansion? How would you live? How would you work? Brothers and sisters, that's us. In the end, we get this world as our possession. It's all given to us, just like Mordecai. And we will co-reign with God over this world towards that end, as we'll see in the next point. Last, a third glorious, amazing thing that awaits us when Christ returns, we will be reinvested with the stewardship originally given at creation. When God created man, he placed him in the garden and he gave him this charge. God's, uh, God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it and rule over the, um, uh, I'm sorry, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky and every living th thing that moves on the earth. We're called to rule and subdue the earth. Well, brothers and sisters, guess what the promise is in Jesus Christ? Yes, we're called to, to do that here, but we're doing it and realizing this is not our wealth. This is not our land yet. Well, guess what? Someday it will. 2 Timothy 2.12, Christ said, If we endure, we shall reign with him. The word for reign there, sum basaluo. Sum, 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 sum is the word sun, sun, which is the word for, for with. And the, and the base word basaluo means to reign or rule as a king. Brothers and sisters, if you endure... And we will because Jesus Christ holds us in his hands. Someday we are going to once again reign unopposed over this world without any question as to who owns it. Incredible. Brothers and sisters, that's our future. That's your future. Read this verse. That's you. Now, we got a problem. 
And that problem is we don't know how much God loves us. We're going to look at a verse like this and say, man, wouldn't that be glorious if that's true? Pie in the sky. Because the reality is, Greg, you don't know how I live. You don't know where I live. You don't know my struggles. I question whether or not at times I'm even saved. I question whether or not God loves me. I question whether or not um, all this stuff that you're talking about belongs uh, uh, to me. Because I'm not worthy of it. May I remind you that the poster children of this book, how they began this book, Yes, there's some, a little bit of debate among scholars. Is Esther Mordecai virtuous at the beginning or not? I've taken the, the stance that they're not. And let me further it with you. What would you think if I told you I met a Christian man this past week? Or this, not past week, during sabbatical when I was in California. Met this Christian man who moved to California, moved to Hollywood, because he wants his Christian boys and daughters, boys and girls, sons and daughters, to marry movie stars, rock stars, and famous people. So he's there rubbing his elbows, is that it? Rubbing his shoulders, rubbing his elbows with powerful people in the hopes that his, that his daughters could marry Johnny Depp, who's available. Right? Or, or Bill Gates, he just got a divorce. He's available. What, what would you think about a Christian man who wanted his daughter, who was working, leveraging everything he could to meet Bill Gates, to try to set up his 12-year-old daughter with Bill Gates, which is about the age of Xerxes when Esther married him at the age of 12? What would you think about a guy who, who, would, who would work towards that? Who would say, man, I want my daughter to marry this man who has been indicted or whatever, divorced because of, of his infidelity. Okay. What would you think, oh, if, if it's not Bill Gates, how about uh, Johnny Depp? If not Johnny Depp, how about Brad Pitt? Hey, he's available too. They just got divorced from Angelina, right? Guys, these people are all for the picking for our children. What are we doing here in Colorado? Let's move to California. Brothers and sisters, you, you, if, you, if, if you met a person who seriously was doing that, you'd say that man's values are messed up, and you would wonder if that man was genuinely driven by the Spirit of God. Is that not what Mordecai and Esther do? Esther's 12 years old, and she's taken to be part of the potential harem. Okay? Now, brothers and sisters, at that, she, she's a victim. But what does she do with it? She embraces it. He's married to over 300 girls. He has over 300 women in his harem. He's currently married to the, the queen. She's just out of, dis, uh, she's, she's out, out of favor. So what do they do? He, they do everything they can so that she could be the next bride. Brothers and sisters, what would a man or a woman of God do in that setting? What would Daniel do in that setting? Who also was 12 years old when he was taken into the palace. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who also were 12-year-old boys. Now, we can look down. I read a commentary recently where the guy was just shocked that, that um, uh, what Deguid was saying about how Esther was in sin and what she was doing. She's a 12. This book, quote, this book, it was a sermon, actually. This book is about sex trafficking. That's what Esther's written about. I'm hearing the sermon, and my eyes are going, wow, you got to be kidding me. And he said, this is a 12-year-old girl. What do you expect her to do? Well, Daniel's a 12-year-old boy. You could say the same thing about him. And what he did was stand for God. Instead, what did Mordecai say? Mordecai said, don't be a Jew. And seven years into her marriage, she hasn't read the word of God, been around God's people, worshiped God. Who knows what she's done? 
She's had to, to, to chuck her Christianity to be married to this guy. For seven years, she hides it. Brothers and sisters, these are not spiritual heroes. These are not moral heroes that you want to emulate. You, you want your daughters to it that, at the beginning of the book. But that's the point. You hear this, you go, what? So there these horrible, wicked people that should be kicked out? No, they're you and me. That's the arrogance of it all. We, don't, we look upon them and hear me say these things about Esther, and it sounds like I'm casting dispersions upon them. Why? Because we want our heroes. We don't want them to be flawed. When brothers and sisters, everyone's flawed but God. And these heroes were just like you and me. And get this, if that's true, and it is, if that's true, and they were living, the poster children of their generation, living in a world where they believed God was done with them because of their compromise, who, how would God deal with a woman at 12 years old who did everything she could to marry a man with 300 wives? What would God do with that person? What would God do with the person who didn't practice Judaism? Who said, I'm done reading the word of God. I'm not going to church. I'm not going to worship. I'm not going to do any of that. Well, we know what God would do with those people. He would make their life rough. He would distance himself. He'd give them that sense that they're nobodies. Oh, you are so, you make me ashamed. He would, he would shame them and make them, that's what he would do. Because that's what he, we think he does with us when we're sinful and dirty. But what did he do with Esther and Mordecai? In spite of their sin, he blessed them. What we're talking about here is the difference between, um, uh, I wrote it down, but find the word, monergism versus synergism. Do you understand Christianity is a moner, one-sided, one-working, one-working religion? Your relationship with God is there because of God's work 150%. And because of that work, we respond by working. Synergism says you work with God in order for God to love you. Monergism says God loves me and therefore I work. Brothers and sisters, if you only knew how much God loved you, cared for you, uh, um, um, was involved in your life. Yes, we're living in the same era that God's people are about ready to enter, an era where God seems silent and far removed, an era where we can come to church and hear, hear a Bible preached written over 2,000 years ago, or in some cases 3,500 years ago, and ask, what relevance does this have to, uh, to my life? And the answer is, look at Esther and Mordecai. All the relevance in the world. God never let them go, no matter how bad they compromised, no matter how bad they were. God continued to love them and care for them. All things in their life worked together for good. And you say, ah, but the text is to those who love God. Okay, is that binary or is that more of a pendulum? Do you understand what I'm getting at? Loving God is not either you love him or you don't. How much do you love? Do you love God? Oh, I do. God says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Did you obey God perfectly this past week? No. Then you don't love him. No, that's not how it works, guys. Our love for God is on a, well, I'm not sure what the word is. It's not binary. It's the opposite. It's, 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 we love him. Just like we believe him. Help thou my unbelief. I love you, God. Help thou my lack of love. Did these guys love God? Yes. They did, but they loved him imperfectly. And because they loved him, and why did they love him? Because he first loved them. 
Because he first loved them, they loved him back. And so guess what the result was? God would always be with them, beside them, upholding them, strengthening them, guiding them, leading them, loving them. And when God's people could grasp the gospel according to Esther, when they could grasp this Old Testament gospel, their lives, their entire lives would be radically changed because then they would know, brothers and sisters, you know where all this is going? What's, all, what's God doing right now in your life? What's he doing in this world? He's equipping and preparing you and me in this world for the day when he gives the wealth of Haman to us. When he takes the office that Haman possessed on this earth and gives it to us. When, furthermore, we assume stewardship over all of the wealth and the possessions of this world. Do you understand? That is the end game. That's where God's bringing you, me, in and through all times. So when you go, man, God didn't make me happy today. God didn't make me feel a little wealthy. God didn't do all these different things that I think he should do. Brothers and sisters, put your focus on the end game. Not on this side of the grave, but the next side of the grave where we, will, where we will dwell with Christ in glory and rejoice. Brothers and sisters, I hope from this sermon today, you walk away being able to say or believe by conviction what you prayed this morning in your confession. Let us stand with no sin upon the conscience, but absolved through Jesus' blood in the enjoyment of such confidence with God that we may lift up our face without a cloud and may trust in God henceforth without a doubt and go on our way rejoicing. Understand the love of God, the cross work of Jesus Christ, what that means for you, and that becomes your biography. May God give us the grace as his people to look at this passage through the eye of faith and behold what awaits us in him. Let's pray together. Father, what an incredible passage and what an incredible foretaste of what awaits us in you. Lord, we can hardly wait. Indeed, Lord, with John, we pray this morning, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come to this earth and with all the signs of the time, Lord, are given not to make us think you're coming to, uh, tomorrow, but Lord, it's to make us, make us say if, if, if they do not repent, they shall likewise perish. And therefore, Lord, is to make us sober and live on this earth in such a way that we are not wasting our time chasing after uh, silly things that will perish, but that, Lord, we would place our focus upon Christ, upon the calling you've placed upon our lives. And so, Lord, with the next shooting that we hear or the next disease that comes or the next war that breaks out or the next natural disaster that, that wreaks havoc, God, give us the grace as your people to not be shocked, not be in awe, but to be a people who would place our focus and hope upon Christ alone and say, this world is not my home. Oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly. God, that is our prayer. For the one who does not know you this day, we pray you to open their eyes that they might see the glorious grace of Jesus Christ. That, Lord, you give them the gift of repentance that they would turn from self-trust to Christ's trust. And that, Lord, they themselves would become children of the living God, that they might share with us the inheritance that is ours in Jesus Christ. We pray this, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.